Well, hey, do me a favor and turn with me to uh, chapter one of the book of John. And uh, <clears throat> we went through the introduction last week. And so uh, I'll try to get you up to speed on that, but uh, not too much because I took 15 minutes on that last time. Uh, but we're in the book of John, and remember, this is not one of the synoptic gospels. This is the fourth gospel. Synoptic means look through, look through something. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four gospels, the first three, synoptic, they're more of what happened during Jesus' life, although they don't all cover the same thing. Remember, we went through that last week. But John's written sort of, not sort of, is written for a different purpose. And I think I actually saw some of you uh, writing this down, and it's sort of a startling statistic. 92% of what's in the book of John is unique to the book of John. That's a big number, folks which tells you something. It's being written for a specific purpose, a different purpose uh, than the first three. And I also wanted you to know that, and some people don't know this, and that's okay, but <clears throat> Matthew, tax collector, he's actually one of the 12, you remember that. Mark, not one of the 12. He's an associate of one of the twelve, but not one of the twelve. Luke, he's a physician. And, and I might add, a self-proclaimed historian. You just read the first chapter. But then there's John, who is one of the twelve. We're going to see the story today. He doesn't mention himself. He, he talks, when he talks about himself in the book of John, he calls himself, this is just so touching, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You, you get, that's going to be important for today's message because John's identity wasn't, I was abused in my past. I had a father that left me. Uh, my business uh, wasn't and uh, didn't go well and I got wrecked. Now listen, I'm not saying pat you on the head and saying those things are easy. Every one of those things are difficult and awful. <clears throat> but here comes this guy who, along with his brother, at the beginning of the book is called a son of thunder because of a couple incidents that seem to suggest that he had some anger issues. <laughs> he was sinfully angry. But by the end, when Jesus rose again and now he's writing this book, he came to the place where his identity wasn't in a thing or stuff or material or power or anything. His identity was that Jesus loved him. And he became known as the apostle that Jesus loved throughout all the ages. Because if you read, uh, oh, get that other thumb up there. His books, John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, he writes more on love than most of the other writers, you see. In, in other words, the love of God by the Son, Jesus Christ, touched him in a deep way, and that became his identity. That's amazing. 
And so here he is, he's writing this, and he actually tells us, he makes no bones about it. He actually tells us in the 20th chapter, go there, why he's writing this book. Verse 30, he actually tells us. And truly, verse 30, chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Watch. So, John, why did you pick what you picked, the 92% and all the other stuff? Why did you pick what you picked to put this in there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Why is it, John? Well, he answers. But these things are written. Everything you read here are written that you, me, us, we, Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I mean, he just doesn't pull any punches. There's no, um, you know, like manipulative evangelism here. There's no hiding the ball, so to speak. I'm writing this letter so that you would believe, that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's very important, that he's the Son of God. He is the same in essence and nature as God. He is God. And that as you believe or believing, you'll have eternal life. No punches pulled. I always sort of feel funny sometimes. You know, I get in trouble for saying stuff like this and People get mad at me, but sometimes when I watch people on YouTube or something witness, I'm not criticizing everybody, it's like they're hiding the ball. Like they're doing this this program to introduce Jesus to people. And he just doesn't need that. What about just being very straightforward? And I think John is... And it's really touching to me, and I hope it's touching to you. And I think as we go through this book, here's what I hope and pray is happening for you. If you don't know that you have salvation through Jesus and that you have eternal life, if you don't know that, I hope as we go through this, you would receive Jesus into your life and be saved. How's that for not hiding the ball? And secondly, if you are saved, I think what John does, I think the book of John does this, it leads to an explosion of praise in your life, in my life, in our life. I think that's what it does because John, unlike the other books, they do do this, but not like John, show you who Jesus is more than what Jesus did. Now, I'm not saying the other Gospels aren't important. They're equally important. That's what I'm saying. There's the place for every Gospel, but this one's different. And we said, didn't we, last week, we said, well, then our series is going to be marked by the eagle. What do you mean the eagle? Why would you say eagle? That's weird. Well, I had heard some time ago that and then looked it up before last week just to make sure I was okay with this. <clears throat> that eagle is one of the only birds that can look directly into the sun, S-U-N. And this book allows us to do that. 
look directly at the sun, S-O-N. Now you say, well, that's interesting, but why would you say something like that? Because remember, in the Old Testament, do you remember Moses in this? If you look, no one could look at God and live. And here Jesus reveals to us who God is. It's powerful. And so I think, I think, I hope, I pray that this series, I guess I shouldn't call it a series because it's just a series of us walking through the verses, (laughs) chapter by chapter, verse by verse, all the way until we uh, get done with uh, chapter 21. But I hope when we're done with this, we understand and know Jesus in a deeper and intimate or more intimate way. That's going to lead uh, us somewhere. A, salvation. B, an explosion of praise. Now, Xander, yesterday at the men's comp or a men's fellowship, led us through Psalm 94. Why don't you turn there? I love it when I can just use somebody else's material. I'm kidding, but there's this verse, uh, basically, uh, this psalmist, whoever this is, some believe it's been written because of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, This psalmist, whoever it is, is uh, writing about the refuge of the righteous. And he says... In verse 16, who's going to rise up for me against the evildoers? Who is going to stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? It's a lot of times Christians ask this question. Why does the wicked uh, advance and I don't advance? Sort of things like that. And there's this verse, 17, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. In other words, this person's circumstances were going to go like this. And oftentimes way down here, and he recognized that the Lord needed to be his help, but he needed to know who the Lord was or is, and that's what we're doing through John. And now, just hang on with me for a minute. He goes on and says, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. That's the Lord. We're looking at the Lord. His mercy holds us up, and here he comes. Here's the uppercut of verses to knock us out in a good way. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Psalm 16, you know, there's joy in the presence of the Lord. See, what I worry about in the Christian church is we sell like seven keys to happiness. Do this and you'll be happy. Don't do this and you be happy. But your stability and strength and joy and comfort, listen, watch, doesn't come from a program. It comes from the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Raise your hand if all your circumstances in your life are just absolutely perfect. Raise it. Nobody would raise it. So watch this. 
Charles Spurgeon says this based on uh, about in the multitude of my anxieties, your comfort delights my soul. Listen to this. How sweet are the comforts of the Spirit? How sweet are the comforts of the Spirit? Who can muse? I had to look that word up, so I'll tell you what it means. Think upon, study, linger on, put, set your mind on. Who can muse upon eternal love, immutable purposes, covenant uh, promises, sorry, finished redemption, the risen Savior, His union with His people, and such like schemes without feeling His heart leap for joy. That's what we're doing in John. That's why I took you there. If you don't know the Lord and have ever received Him, I am praying, we are praying, that through the book of John, you would receive the Lord into your life. But if you are a saved, born-again individual, we're praying that your anxieties, whatever that means in the Hebrew, and that means a lot of things, fear, bitterness, and you could go on and on. Those are sort of washed away as you linger on the Lord Jesus himself. You commune with him. You walk with him. You talk with him. You see our heart here in the book of John? It's to look at the sun like the eagles. Let's soar, S-O-A-R, and high as we read his word. Well, last week we basically went through verse 5. Sorry, I had a long introduction, but I'm going to read it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, verse 1, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. Now, I think it's important that you read that again as we start in verse 6. And the reason I think it's important is because here is this what some people call a prologue. I'm not sure it's a prologue. But anyway, the commentators call this a prologue. And it tells you who Jesus is. At the beginning was the Word. He, he was there. And we know from Revelation 19 and some other places, Genesis 1, Jesus is the Word. And at the beginning, the Word was already there. He's eternal. He's never not existed. That's not a great way of saying it, but that's how I came up with it. He's always been. He's not a created being. He was always there. And oh, by the way, He is God. So there's three persons eternally distinct. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So how many gods do we believe in? Three persons, one God. And that's what this is saying, and it's mind-blowing. We went through the word that was used for the word, logos, both Greek and Hebrew. It would mean something to somebody. But then he comes and he tells us that there's going to be this theme in my book, John says. And he says the theme is going to be light and darkness. And then you go, why, John, would you write what you write in the next few verses? Here it is. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, when I was a kid reading this, this got me really confused. Because I thought he was talking about himself. And of course, he's not. And you all know this. 
He's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist, who was born about six months prior to the time Jesus was born in the manger. And he was related to him. Remember that? We talked about it last week. But there was this man sent from God whose name was John. And now he's talking about what you people and me, we say, is John the Baptist. But in this book, he's not introducing John the Baptist as John the Baptist. In fact, we shouldn't call him John the Baptist in this book. He does say he baptizes, and we'll talk about that. But he's using John the Baptist for something different right here. And that's this. He's calling John the Baptist, or the story of John the Baptist, to be a witness. Write it down. That's not what John the writer uses John the Baptist for in this book. He speaks about his baptism, but that's not it. He's calling him to be a witness, and it's really beautiful. Out of nowhere... He writes this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and this man came for a witness, wow, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Are you catching it? It might give you a different slant on John the Baptist. If you read through all of the accounts of the Gospels, there's a ton of information about John the Baptist. You'll get a lot. You'll get the story of his mom visiting Mary. You'll get the story of his dad in the temple. Finally gets his big day and an angel comes and tells him what... You, you know all of that. You know that he's from the Levites and the priests. You know that he goes out beyond the Jordan and he's baptizing and doing his thing and calling for repentance and, you know, uh, you know wash, be forgiven of your sins. And, and there's a big crowd that's coming. You're going to get all that through all, all the Gospels. But out of the blue, he comes and says, well, there was this man sent from God whose name was John. But this man came for, I mean, think about it. Wouldn't you expect it to say to be a baptizer? He doesn't say that. He says, for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which gives light to every man coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. You see it? There's like this blip. Poom. It comes up, and he says, now I want you to talk about, or I'm going to talk about John the Baptist for these three verses, and then we're going to get right back to Jesus. Are you catching that? That's important for the story here. Some people... Some commentators make a good point on why in the world did John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write this way or write this about John at this point because it sort of seems out of place. But here, John, inspired, says this, or, or many say this. This is God's way, sort of, of letting the light of Christ, catch this, shine in the world via human witnesses. What a privilege it is to know and to be known by our Lord and Savior. And I don't know exactly why in the back of Matthew and other places, but I, I don't know exactly why that he would give us, his followers, the Great Commission. I mean, I know he does it, 
And I know in the comfortable church, it's not really that effective, but we know about it. But Jesus said this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's from, you know, the end of Matthew there. And you go back and you go, wait, wait a second. There's this theme, darkness, light. And Jesus is the true light the one that comes in and warms people to life. And the announcement that this one, the Messiah, the Christos, has come is going to come through the human lips. And he's going to be not just a baptizer, he's going to be a witness. Man, don't don't you love it when you hear that You as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, are called to be a witness. I'm so thankful. And, you know, I just happen to be a lawyer. I know. Don't hate me for it. But you know what? Being a witness is way less tense than being the prosecuting attorney. The prosecuting attorney has to get all the witnesses together, the evidence, uh, meet the burden of proof, seek out the conviction. You know what a witness does? They just get up on the stand, put their hand up, say the oath, and tell the truth. How liberating is that? You don't have to, you're not, you just tell what you know. That's a witness. And here, John and you and I, I believe, are called to be witnesses. Hey, are we called to know and rightly divide the word and be able to give a defense for the hope that lies within us? Yes, but we don't have to argue with anybody. Why would you argue with somebody? Just stand up and be a witness. Hey, man, I love all your arguments, all that sort of thing. But I know Jesus is real because he's forgiven me of my sins. He's come into my life and transformed me from the inside out. And I know you got all these heavy theological arguments or whatever. You have these doubts and things, and those are valid. The Lord does want to give answers to these things, of course. But all I know was, just like the man, I was blind, but now I see. I'm just a witness. Here, John the Baptist is a witness. It's interesting to me. Lord chose human instruments to witness to the world. (laughs) And so don't take this the wrong way if this is your ministry. Of course, flood the Instagram with Scripture, flood Facebook with Scripture, uh, flood Twitter with Scripture, flood, you know, TikTok, do everything you want, but there's never replaced, listen to this, that person-to-person contact with the people, sharing the love of Christ as a witness, folks. Here he chose to do it through John the Baptist, and he goes on here in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. And we talked about some of the reasons the world chose to not know him. They, they, they liked the darkness better than the light. It's going to say it in the second chapter of John. 
Romans tells us that men suppress the truth. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says that the enemy of our souls veil the eyes of those who don't believe. So you have these things that are working against us knowing him. Isn't that a fascinating way of saying it? Because later on in John 17, do you know it defines what eternal life is? John does. He says, this is eternal life. That you would know him, Jesus. Know him. Not know about him. Not have a Susie Orman paradigm of living with Jesus included at the top of the bullet point. That's not it. It's coming into a relationship, counting on him for everything. Knowing him. And here it says the world did not know him, but he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. He was born in Israel. He spoke to the Jews, the people in his hometown. His own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. I always say this, and people like to argue about it, and that's fine. I don't mind arguing. (laughs) But if you don't know this, know this. If you ask the question, true or false, is everybody a child of God? The answer is false, folks, according to this verse. Everybody was born in the image, image and likeness of God, and everybody deserves dignity, yes. But in a spiritual sense, you're not part of the family of God until you receive him into your life and count and trust on him for your salvation. And then you receive, you have the right to become children of God. Isn't that interesting? You say, man, maybe somebody's watching or listening thinking, I don't like that. Well, read it. And here, do something about it. Fall on your knees and receive the Lord. But, he came as many as received him to them. He gave the right to become children to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I'm so thankful for that verse, verse 13 there. I, I lived my Christian life at the beginning according to the flesh. I just, all I did was like, give me the rules, man. And I'll go out of here and I'll, I'll beat all of you at these rules. That's how I thought of it. And then Grace. God had me discover grace. We're not born like humanly or not. We can't muster up enough will to be born again. No, we have to be born not of blood, but of God by his will and his good pleasure. Let him take ownership of our lives He is the author of our salvation. He is writing our story. You're not in control. He is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You read that and just go, okay, Christmas verse. That's pretty cool. But the people who were reading this at the time that this was written, and the word, first of all, the logos became flesh. You know this, right? That's the word for the tabernacle and dwelt here and dwelt among us. That's the word for the tabernacle. Sorry, dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. 
And if you were living at the time, remember, that would evoke all the things that the Jews were doing as they were coming through the Old Testament in the wilderness. This traveling tent went with them. And not only that, but do you remember this? I always get it backwards, so correct me when I do. There was a fire by night. Oh, I think I got it right. And a cloud by day. And they didn't move unless the Lord moved. The Shekinah, the glory of the Lord They just looked and wherever, okay, we can move now. And they would take and that tabernacle was there. And that was the thing in which they sacrificed animals so that they could have their sins covered, not paid for, but covered. And so listen, and and, and it was so hard to approach God. In fact, there were two chambers to the actual tabernacle, which was sort of a you know, it had tent around, you know, a wall around it of tent. And you, you know what I'm saying. And there were two chambers, and in the back of that chamber was the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory resided and where it said, <clears throat> you know, I will meet with you, Moses, there over the mercy seat. That's the place. And you know that was only where one person could go, the great high priest, once a year. You know all about that. So what I'm telling you is, or what the writer's telling you is, it's no longer impossible or difficult, in a sense, to get to God. <laughs> because, because of Jesus, you now have access. You have a right to be, uh, become a child of God and to believe in his name, and you're born again, and the word has become flesh. He was born here, and it was important to John. You read 1 John 1, 1 through 2. It was important to John because there was this heresy that he was sort of like Casper the ghost after he died. And he's saying, no, he became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw him. They actually said he was like Casper the ghost before he died. Sorry about that. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We, we saw Jesus, and that was the glory of God, he's telling us. Why do you think we come here to just do some silly ritual? No way. It's to worship the living God who's glorious. And we know that the Bible tells us that that was revealed to us finally in Jesus. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That one really confused me reading that as a kid or even growing up. That just means he was the unique one, same in nature and essence as the Father, It doesn't mean he was created. It means he was the unique one, the only one that came from the Father. He's always existed. And this is the one, see, as you look into the sun, watch it. He's full of grace and truth. That's great. You know why it's great, right? Because... Truth without grace is total brutality. It's brutal. There are a lot of Christians I know, just maybe I can be this way too, who are sort of brutal because all they bring all the time is just truth, truth, truth. There's never any grace. But grace without truth is wimpy. Oh, it's okay. I know you're 
sleeping with another lady and you have a wife, but you know, everything's going to be fine and come on back and we'll just do that. Well, (laughs) that's not grace, folks. Read Titus. Not grace at all. In the American church, I think we equate grace. If I had to put up an image in my head of what the American church thinks grace is, I would put a crutch instead of grace. That's what I think we think. Oh, give him breaks. Yes, we do get breaks. He's merciful. But grace is a training grace. It goes hand in glove with truth. There's grace and there's truth. There's truth and there's grace. And one of the other is really dangerous. If you only do one... It's dangerous, and Jesus came full of grace and truth. He could go with the woman at the well, with all these husbands, and one more on the way. Wasn't it beautiful? If you knew where Samaria was or is, and the, the, you know, a, a rabbi, a teacher walking straight through Samaria, they didn't do that. They walked around. They hated each other. He makes a beeline. He knows he's going to be there with a woman. I mean, come on, a woman. You wouldn't really want to do that in these days. Be alone, either a woman or a man, alone together and, you know, married. I know Jesus wasn't married, but you get what I'm saying. Or what, That just is not cool. And, and here he goes, and he just says something interesting to me. <clears throat> he says, hey, how about a drink of water? He just wants to talk with her at the beginning. Just get to know her. You know, he doesn't come with his, uh, you know, 1692, you know, dusty Bible and just, boom, hit her across the face. He takes time for her. He loves her. There's this grace. He knows that he's the answer. And that if he dr- she drinks from the well that he, she, he would show to her, she'd never thirst again. She's thirsting for relationships and finding her worth in a relationship. And he knows that's not good for her. And so he, he, he makes friends with her, and he, it's beautiful. He's full of grace and truth. You see it in that story and all stories of what Jesus did. But that's not just all. That's not all. In John 1, he goes, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, here it goes again, that John thing. This isn't John the writer. This is John the Baptist. And he bore witness of him. Again, it's not about the baptism, although the baptism will be included here. It's about the witness. Time out, rabbit trail. When you go up on the stand and you tell your truth, the truth that you know, you've witnessed, Yes, there is less pressure. I mean, you're not the prosecuting attorney. You just say what you believe. But listen, I want you to see something. When you're a witness, you're out there publicly now. You've committed to the truth. And others know too. Do you get that? You're just laying it out there for them, the facts, the reality. And now you've committed. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so here he says, he bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. Remember, he was born before Jesus. And he's saying, He did come after me, but he's in. 
you know, however you want to say it. He's the one. He's of great import. For he was before me. It's so liberating if you're just called to be a witness. You don't have to have, you know, a multi-thousand person ministry. You don't have to be on TV and write a book and get the royalties and all that sort of thing and show everybody your high tops that cost a thousand bucks and your watches. You don't, you don't care about that. You don't care about whether people know you or don't know you or you're on YouTube and you're famous. You don't care about that. What you care about as you become a witness impacted by the love of God is that he is the one that increases and you decrease. He's going to say that here in a minute. But that the focus is not on you. The focus is on Jesus, even as you become the witness. Isn't that awesome? And the truth be told, sometimes when we're in ministry, we like the fact that people see us doing good. Some of us may even be addicted to it. I would say I would be prone to that. I I have to pray against that, man. Just more of Jesus, less of me. He said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. In other words, he recognized his eternality. He was eternal. And of this fullness, (laughs) underline this, man. (laughs) See, I wouldn't deny that under the Old Old Testament system, there was grace. God was providing a way... For us to commune with him, for people to commune with him. Of course, it wasn't the covenant of grace. That was ushered in by the blood of Christ. I understand that. But God's grace was seen even in the Old Testament. But here, the writer here, John, by John and others, but here the writer is saying, but now we have the fullness of it. All that grace and truth are and is, we have it all. And it's in the person and work of Jesus And we have this fullness, and I want you to see something, folks. (laughs) We have access to it. There's grace for salvation, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but then there's grace for daily living. You need the resource and life of Jesus just to get through the day, don't you? Okay, time out. Here's my plug again. And I love that Jan talk, tells me about this. If you don't know Bob Hoekstra and Day by Day by Grace, it, it is the best devotion of all time. And I don't care what you say. <laughs> I'm kidding. I know other people like others. But here's why. It builds one upon the other for 365 days, telling you and talking to you about what grace is and how you live by grace. Thus, day by day by grace. And I would just get it. There's some in the bookstore down here. You can get it free, emailed to your phone. Get it. Grace changes everything because we have access to the fullness of his grace and grace for grace. I know, I think weird. But it's just like God in that old children's game. You need grace, and then something happens, and you go, and he goes, okay. And then something happens, and he goes, oh, you need some more grace. Oh, okay, boom, boom, boom. It's just grace upon grace 
upon grace, the resource and strength of the Lord. It's why the scriptures say his new mercies are new every morning. Because you keep getting it. He never cares that you continue to come and rely upon him. You see it? So amazing. You have the access of grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Yes, there was a new thing that the Lord was doing through Jesus, and grace and truth just ring through and shout to the world through the gospel in the personal work of Jesus. And no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father. This is, this is just so amazing. He has declared him. The word is exegesis, folks. If you're in uh, seminary school, you know about that word. Exegesis is what pastors are supposed to do on Sunday morning. They're not supposed to come at the Bible with preconceived notions. That's not what a pastor is supposed to do. A pastor is supposed to go into the Bible in the context in which it was reading, lift it up out of there, and tell you what it says. Get it? And here, the author says, he has exegeted, Jesus has exegeted, or there's exegesis in Jesus with respect to God the Father. In other words, he, if you look at Jesus, you're looking at the Father. This is the one that was manifested to us. You could read it in Hebrews. If you're looking at Jesus... You're knowing about the Father. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Wow. Now, this is the testimony of John. Can you hardly believe it now that I've clued you into it? It's all about legal stuff here. Witness, witness, testimony. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and didn't deny, but confessed I'm not the Christ. Note what he says. I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, well, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Well, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, let me just give you real quick what's happening here. There's a prophecy in Malachi that said that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Okay? You can go back and look at that in Malachi, or somebody could teach it to us here on Wednesday nights. But anyway... It's there. And you know this, right? Between the pages of the Old Testament and the pages of the New Testament exist 400 years. There's nothing that happens for 400 years between the Old Testament prophets and Jesus arising on the scene. There's nothing from God. It's just sort of silent. The last word was, there must be Elijah before the Messiah. And they ask him, which of course they would concern, be concerned, are you Elijah? And he says no. Later, though, Jesus sort of clears it up. Do you know this? And he tells us that John the Baptist came in the office and spirit of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah, but came in the office and spirit of Elijah. Time out. Before Jesus comes back a second time, you can get our tapes on the book of Revelation. There may be an appearance of Elijah. 
And that's for a different day. But that's what they're saying here. And then they say, are you the prophet? And this comes from Deuteronomy 18 with Moses. There was this indication that there was this prophet that was going to come, Deuteronomy 18, that was greater than Moses. And if you lived at the time of Moses, you would be like, what? Somebody greater than Moses? And they ask him that. Are you the prophet? And he says, no. And then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Now, listen, it's the Jews uh, sent priests and Levites they sort of represent the religious establishment to go out and talk to John the Baptist. And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, which is a quotation from the book of Isaiah that was written 800 or so years prior. And he's saying, you know what you used to read about and learn about the prophets, Isaiah testifying, eight? okay, I'm the one who's coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's what he's saying there. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, why do you uh, baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, uh, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. Remember? John 17 defines what eternal life is. I'll keep going to it. And that is that you would know him, Jesus. Here comes John the Baptist preparing this highway, so to speak. In fact, in the uh, book of Isaiah, it says he knocks down the hills, props up the valleys to sort of make a highway or, or, or a way towards Jesus. He's just, man, pointing to Jesus. I'm going to baptize people with water, but there stands one among you whom you don't know. It's he who coming after me, who is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. That's sort of like saying, I'm a slave. I'm, I've given my life to Jesus, even though I'm the baptizer. I, I've given him. I'm following him. <clears throat> and I come and I baptize with water, but there's going to be one who's greater than me. And he did this in the Bethbara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And most people believe if you look at the map of Israel, there's a Sea of Galilee in the north. There's the Dead Sea in the south on the eastern edge. And there's a Jordan River that comes up. And just above, a few miles above um, the Dead Sea, that's where uh, that occurred, Bethbara. But they're not exactly sure about that. But anyway, that's where it was. Okay, now you're sort of glazing on me. Ah, I got your head up. Good. But now the writer of, Jesus, or writer of John, John himself, he does something really interesting. He leaves out the time that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. How many days was that? Forty. Remember that? He leaves that totally out. And he does something interesting He says, the next day, in verse 29, look in verse 35. And he says, the next day there, and then he goes in verse 43. The following day, you see that? And then he's going to say in chapter 2 there, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. By the way, most of the time in Israel, weddings were on Wednesdays. So if you backtrack, one of these days that he's talking about was the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? 
But what he does here is over the next two chapters, this is another theme of John. Remember, Alan Redpath says, John is so simple that a child can wade in it, and yet so profound that an elephant could swim in it. And here, John, for some reason, gives you a day, or a week, excuse me, a week of days that show us who Jesus is, which many commentators believe correspond to the seven days of creation. Remember, in the beginning was the word. What does it remind you of? Creation. And so many people believe this is sort of like the perfect perfection of activities that would show to you who Jesus is. You get what I'm saying? All right, look at this. The next day, John, verse 29, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you're like, okay, I know that. Yeah, but to the people who lived at that time, remember, there was all those years of doing this. And what would they do? They would raise these lambs and they would take them down and they would sacrifice them for their families, them, their families, right? And now, John, as Jesus is coming toward him, says, watch this, look. This is the Lamb of God who takes away not just the sin of your family, but for anyone in the world who comes to him and receives the sin of the world. Woe. Remember in Revelation, I think it's chapter 5, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. In other words, look, look at the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. He was born before me, but he was eternal. He's greater. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. What else happened at that time? The Father said, this is my son. Listen, listen, and I'm, I'm well pleased in my son. And then it confirmed it for John. John the Baptist learned who his relative was. Whoa! I've sort of just been putting one foot in front of the other, John the Baptist would say. I know the Lord called me to make way the path straight out in the wilderness for the one, and I didn't know. But when I baptized him, by the way, why would Jesus get baptized? He was sinless. He's identifying with all of you. But also something else happened. The dove comes down and sits on him, and that cinched it for John. And the heaven says, you know, the Father from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water unto me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to do something greater, not just baptize with water, but when you are baptized into the death and the new life of Jesus Christ, you have available to you the Holy Spirit of God. You have resource and strength for the day, folks. You don't have to do Susie Orman anymore. 
no offense to Bill McCartney and that movement, Promise Keepers, but you don't have to keep promises. You receive the resource of Jesus to help you keep the promises. You don't have to muster up your own strength. And by the way, I've been to Promise Keepers, so don't, don't send me an email and say you hate Promise Keepers. I've been to it, but, but, but you get it? It's not what I can do to keep a promise. It's who lives in me that helps me live like Jesus, which is him. Hope you get that. (laughs) So he does and remained on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and here it comes again, and testified that this is the son of God. Another theme that he's going to uh, use here. He's the son of God. This is God the son. He's the son of God, but he's God the son. That's the point. He's the same in nature and essence as God. Don't think of him as something lesser. He's not. Just different, eternally distinct, and yet God. Again, watch this, the next day, here he comes, the perfect week, John stood with two of his disciples. This is funny because he never tells you who the second disciple is here, which obviously meant he was writing about himself, John the writer, not John the Baptist. So again, the next day, John, that's the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples. So these two disciples are disciples of John the Baptist, and one of them's John the writer. Do you get that? And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. When you understand what Jesus has done for you, that's when you follow him. And Jesus turned and seeing the disciples said to them, The question for the ages, what do you seek? Well, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, here's what I sought. Money, fame, power, image, entertainment. And by the way, I just thought that's what everybody did. I had no idea. Zip. Zero. I just thought it was the American way. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get to the point you can retire at age 50 and play golf all the time. I mean... Go on airplanes and have fun. That's what I thought life was about. And the Bible tells us that's vanity. And Jesus wants to know, what do you seek? It's the question for the ages. By the way, in grace, in verse 39, this is a phrase of grace. He says, come and see. That's the response to what do you seek? What do you seek? Oh, wait a minute. You want to be happy. You want joy. You want peace. He says, listen, come and see. Rabbi, they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was, staying and remained with him but, uh, that day. And they mark it with the time. Isn't that so cute? Some people believe this is under uh, Roman time, which would make it 10 a.m., but whatever. The point is not whether it was Roman or Hebrew time they were using. These disciples knew the exact time they met with Jesus, and they wanted to remember it. Now, here i got to tell you something for you people who like to know all the answers. 
Jesus just says, what are you seeking? And he just says, listen, if you'll just come, come and find out. You don't need all of the answers. You'll get them, you'll get them, you'll get them. But it's not about the answers. Of course, he doesn't want you to, you know, just la, 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 la through Christian life. Not that. Seek after him, you know, be a good apologist, all that sort of thing. But you're never going to know everything. And he just says, but the safest and greatest and best place to be is with me. And he knows it. So one of the two who heard John, verse 40, speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. One of the two. So Andrew is with John. Do you catch that? John the writer. Those are the two. And Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, well, we found the Messiah, the anointed one, which is translated Christ in the Greek. And watch this. Andrew brought him to Jesus. I I want you to see something. And this is the beauty of looking at the sun. We're going to now get an account of how I think six or so, some of the disciples came to follow Jesus. And they're all in different ways. So watch the way in which you package the gospel. I would say that if you want to be a great sharer of God's word, be a listener, not a speaker. Now, I'm not saying don't preach the gospel. Of course you preach the gospel, and you have to use words to do that. But you ever been with somebody who's sharing the gospel with other people, and they got like some sort of script, and they're sort of looking up, and they're sort of looking down, and they're not really listening. to They're just waiting until the person gets done talking so they can go on to number two. Nobody here but me has done that. But, and I've probably done it before, by the way. Here I want you to see they all come in a different way. The first two were invited over, and Jesus went through with them and stayed with them and remained with them. Or excuse me, uh, 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 yeah, Jesus, and he says, come and see. And they came and saw where he was standing and remained with him. They they did that. They they had this personal interaction over the house. And one of the two who heard uh, John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother. He, He just says, wow. You know, John the Baptist introduced these first two, and now these first two, watch this, a brother goes get a brother, goes to get a brother, the family. And it's really fascinating. You could look back in chapter 6, verse 8, when they fed the 5,000, it was Andrew who brought the little boy with the loaves and fishes to Jesus. And it was also Andrew when some Greeks came into Jerusalem who just, wow, what should we do? Okay, let's just take them to Jesus. The ministry of Andrew wasn't some prepackaged thing on the back of a magazine. By the way, that's sort of how I got saved, so I'm not against it. But Andrew was, let's just bring people to Jesus. <laughs> However it is, I don't need the glory. I don't have to be the one with the evangelical notch in my belt. I just want to bring people to Jesus. That's cool. You can see the humility in Andrew, can you not? We found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you're Simon, the son of Jonah. You know, I've heard pastors say that Simon or Jonah means shifting sand. 
I can't find anywhere where it says that because if you look it up in the, uh, uh, the concordance, Simon means hearer, hearer, or being heard. In other words, this guy liked to talk a lot. Boy, do I resonate with that. Anybody else here like that? You ever put your foot in your mouth? And here he says, but I'm going to change your name to Stone. I'm going to make you stable. And we're going to use you, or I'm going to use you to bring about the church. Well, anyway, the following day, here, you see it? It's the perfect week. (laughs) I don't know why I'm calling it the perfect week. It's just that the Lord used in his writer a week to showcase who Jesus is. The following day, Jesus went to... Uh, wanted to go to Galilee. Where's Galilee? Way up north from Jerusalem. And he found this guy. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, Bethsaida is up on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, all the way up in the north of Israel. They don't actually know where it is, but it seems to be about a mile or two north of the Sea of Galilee, but don't get messed up about that. The Sea of Galilee used to have this river thing, and they would sail their fishing boats down this river thing from Bethsaida, and there they would be in the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, they were from there. They were, they were these fisher guys, and they were from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, watch this, <laughs> come and see. Just like Jesus said. You might not know all the answers, but come and see Jesus in a personal way. Just come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit or guile. In the King James, folks, this is beautiful. It says Jacob. There is no Jacob. Remember Jacob and Esau? We always sort of rant on Esau for selling his birthright, but Jacob was the manipulative one, the heel catcher, the one that grabbed his brother and came out, and the one who all through his life sort of manipulated the circumstances. And you know, I think it's in Genesis 32, there was this one night where Jacob had to wrestle with God. And the Lord put a limp in his hip, you know what I mean? Fully wrestling with God, and at the end of that thing, after he'd wrestled and been blessed, he changed his name from manipulator heel catcher to Israel. Governed by God. Isn't that fascinating? Another thing that's fascinating is, I want you to see this, Jesus, who had the Holy Spirit descend upon him, Jesus, who in Philippians 2, it says, he put a right, put, put aside his rights to his Deity never stopped being God. That's not what we're saying. But laid down those rights to his deity, right? And, and lived this life as a man would live in dependence upon the Father. I want you to see something here. I think Jesus exercised a gift of the Spirit right here. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I saw you, Nathaniel. Jesus said, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And I recognized there was this something about you. 
where you had switched from being a manipulator to being an Israelite, one governed by God. And that really blew him away, right? Why am I telling you that? See all the different ways people are coming to the Lord right here? Not in a box. Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called, was under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus goes, this is so funny. This is great, isn't it? Wait a minute. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God descending and, or ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, you can take this for what it's worth. This isn't in the scriptures. But you know what I think he was doing under the fig tree? I think he was reading the scriptures. You know what I think he was reading? I think he was reading Genesis chapter 28. What happens in Genesis uh, 28? Well, he's out in Bethel, the house of God. That's what that means. And remember, he has a rock for a pillow. And he sort of sees, doesn't he? Or doesn't sort of see. He sees this vision of angels of God ascending and ascending a ladder, Jacob's ladder. Jacob's out there. And he sees this ladder. Remember that? Jacob's ladder. I think this guy was reading Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> That's just my own personal opinion. You don't have to believe that. But if he was, isn't it interesting? Man, you're the son of God. And Jesus goes, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, you will see greater things than these. By the way, why do I think that he was reading the scriptures there? Because many of the times the rabbis would have you sit under the trees to learn. Why? Because other than the week that we went to Israel, Israel's really hot. Israel's really hot. And they would have him so they could, they could concentrate more. So he must have been doing, reading something. I think that's the signal that he was doing something. You're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God descend. And this would have blown them away. And then he throws in the kicker. He's, going, he's saying, listen, to the, to the disciples, I'm the link between heaven and earth. <laughs> I'm Jacob's ladder. <laughs> and they would have gone, whoa. And then they were also blown away because he kicks in, descending upon the Son of Man. I mean, I'm the ladder. And the Son of Man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, because the King of glory who comes to judge the world, who's that? The Messiah. Who's that? Jesus is called right there. It's a messianic title, the Son of Man. And they all knew it. Okay. I went long. See, folks, I had to get back in the groove. I was 16 minutes earlier last week. But I want you to see something here. You're called to be a witness, just like John the Baptist. And you're going to, you know, you ever said, well, that person, oh, I know they're going to, and they just, they hesitate, and then somebody who doesn't hesitate or who you think maybe never would come into the Lord, come to the Lord. They come to the Lord. We know a friend from California that sort of 
did that. Uh, but you can't put God in a box here, folks. I'm a person who uses things like the four spiritual laws. I use the back of the Calvary Chapel magazine. I'm not blasting the magazine. I love the magazine. I use it. I put it in my backpack. I share the back of the magazine with people. I go through it. I show them the scriptures. But God is going to bring people to himself the way he wants to as he uses you. And so this is an encouragement that the light of the gospel comes through his people. And he doesn't want you to get frustrated and sad. He'll do the work of saving. You just do the work of spreading the seed. He'll bring people unto himself. And if you're here and you've never done that, that could be you today. And you and I and we could pray up here after the service. If the Lord's tugging on your heart in any way about any of these things, I want you to come up after and we'll pray with you. We're going to have a last worship song. I'm sorry I went over. But I want to remind you before we go, this isn't just pastor speak. This isn't... The Lord is wanting you to take a real look at who he is. It matters, man. There are people out there that sound like Christians that have a totally different gospel. One tried to friend us this week on our social media. They were saying, oh, I've seen your, your, your videos and things that you guys put up on Calvary Chapel uh, social media. We're brothers in Christ. They're not. I don't know how else to say it. Do I love them? Do I want to share with them? Yes, but they're not. And we have to recognize who Jesus is so we can recognize the counterfeit stuff. And then you feel dry in your Christian walk, maybe or maybe not. Well, John's the book for you. Because when you see who Jesus is and as he lives his life through his people, there's an explosion of praise that comes so that you can share the light in a massively unbelievable dark world. Man, until Jesus comes, don't you want to do that? Don't you want to share God's love and light with the people who are dying spiritually? Not in some elite, cavalier way like we're superior, but in a humble way that we have the light, we want to give it to you. Let's pray. Boy. Well, Lord, we just do. We come here and we say thank you for showing us who you are. And as we come, Lord, we uh, pray that you would do your mighty work in our hearts. Lord, I pray this would not be a regular week, or maybe I should pray it is a regular week in you by your resource. I know there are people in here who have lost people. Really, they haven't lost them. We know where they are. And so I pray that you would give them strength and comfort and joy and healing. And I pray for many that you'd fill us up so that when we go to our works or extracurricular activities, there would be many opportunities to share your love and light with people who are lost and lonely. Oh, man, Lord, use us, would you? Your humble servants, in Jesus' name, amen.